Uh, Raymond asked me to share from the book that I wrote about facing the future with confidence in Christ, and I'm very eager to to uh, address you on this topic. Uh, I have a very specific goal for tonight, and that is that for each one of us, when we look to the future, we would do so with great joy, uh, with great confidence, and with great faith in God. God does not want his people to experience sinful fear or sinful anxiety about what lies ahead. He wants us to know that in Christ we have a bright tomorrow. And so my prayer is that God would use this evening to equip each one of us to face the future with hope and with joy, that he would give us a sort of unwavering confidence, a trust in God for whatever comes our way. And I believe that's part of what God is working in our lives. It occurs to me that the book is perhaps more, and the, and the message of this book is perhaps more relevant now and more timely now than it was uh, when I first wrote it from a cultural perspective. Um, one of the verses that came to mind just as I was thinking about this evening and my desire is Isaiah chapter 3 verse 10, which uh, is just a, a short phrase, but I wanted to sort of use this as a summary for this time. It says, In Isaiah 3, verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. Simple, glorious, profound. Because apparently God's righteous saints have a tendency to think that it will not be well with them. And so the prophet is called by God to speak words of grace, to speak words of hope, to speak words of life. Tell the righteous it shall be well with them. And if your heart is in turmoil today, if you are at a place where it's hard for you to believe that it will indeed be well with you, then I believe God has something for you here tonight. Uh, My own experience, it was in the summer of 2016 when I started writing, I had this idea for a book on facing the future with confidence in Christ. I took a sabbatical and I was working on writing during that time. It was one week into that sabbatical when my then two-year-old daughter, Aggie, was diagnosed with cancer. And so I was studying these very themes of facing the future with confidence, considering the themes of of hope as we look to an uncertain future, and then that news came, which was one of the greatest trials that we have ever faced, and it was during her sickness that I just decided, I think the Lord has me in this theme for a reason at this time, and I want to continue to reflect on this uh, for my own sake, and so I continued writing during that time. Um, writing some in the hospital, writing some as we cared for uh, our precious Agatha. Uh, She's now seven years old, and she's healthy, and she's doing very well. But there are the lessons that I learned during that time that are captured in what I have written. Uh, There was something that I read that very week, because I was immersed prior to her diagnosis. I'm studying this theme of facing the future with confidence. I read something by Ray Ortland in his book on Romans 8, And this is the sentence that he says, A strong confidence in God's loving intentions and enveloping care fortifies us to face whatever life throws at us. Strong confidence, God's loving intentions, and in his enveloping care. That fortifies us. That strengthens us to face whatever life throws at us. I don't know what life is currently throwing at you or what life will throw at you at you in the future, but I do know God desires to fortify his people to face it. The future of every Christian 
is incredibly bright, and the way to live a fruitful life in the present is to embrace all that God has spoken about that glorious future. We are like travelers whose view of the path ahead profoundly shapes our experience of life's journey. What we think about the future matters, and when our thoughts of the future are ill-formed or full of doubt, that drains our joy and our peace in the present. But when our thoughts are biblically informed and full of faith, it is then that we flourish. Uh, There are a few verses that have profoundly influenced my thinking about the future. One is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17, where it says that God our Father has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. You are so greatly loved by the Father, and He is so generous in His grace that eternal comfort and good hope have been secured for you. Another verse, and this is really my prayer for this time, is Romans 15, verse 13. We often use this as a benediction following our Sunday service. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I've also learned much in thinking about verses on this theme of facing the future with confidence in Christ. I've learned much from that woman in Proverbs 31 who is commended for laughing at the days to come. I just think about that description and think that's the kind of person I want to be. Looking to the days to come and having such deep confidence in the goodness and grace of God that we're able to laugh at the days to come. And then there are are chapters that give hope, and I actually want to read uh, several verses from one of those chapters, which is John 14. Let's turn to John 14 if you have your Bible with you. And I want, at the outset of this time, I want each one of you to consider, if you can, very personally and in your own life, in your own thinking, what situation or circumstance in your own life or in the world presently makes it most challenging for you to experience joy and hope as you look to the future? What is it in your life that is where this theme becomes relevant. It could be related to our culture or COVID or health concerns, anxieties regarding children, uh, other loved ones. It may be something big and it may be something small. What I want us to do is to hear God's word as it relates to and applies to that particular burden that we are carrying. John 14 records the words that Jesus spoke the evening before he died. He explained that he was departing, he would no longer be with them, and not only that, but he told them they would remain in the world and they would be hated in the world. He says, I will no longer be with you, and you, as you remain, will be kicked out of synagogues and even put to death. And as the disciples of Christ considered the future, they were fearful, they were distressed, and they were lonely. Uh, They wondered to themselves, are we going to make it? Can we face the future? If Jesus really cared about us, why would he leave us? And I just want to read some of what Jesus says to them in the midst of their fear of the future in that moment. In John 14, look at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, 
are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And then look forward at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. One of the reasons that I'm so affected by these verses is that here is the Son of God, moments away from bearing the sins of the world, and yet he comforts others. It amazes me every time I consider that on his way to the cross, the night before he would be crucified, Jesus is speaking to our fears. Jesus is ministering to his own. He cares for us like no one else, and he loves his disciples to the end. And notice the way that Jesus leads us from fear to faith. It's not stop thinking about the future. It's rather that we overcome fear of the future by remembering our future in Christ. And this simple truth that we overcome fear of the future by remembering our future in Christ has far-reaching implications for our lives. If we're presently overcome with fear and anxiety regarding the future, it is because we have lost sight of our future in Christ. What does Jesus tell his disciples when their confidence is waning, when fear is rising, when they're troubled about the future? Well, verses 1 through 3, he reminds them that he goes to prepare a place for them. He's saying, remember, this is your future. This world is not your home. Christ has a better place for you. And in the meantime, we have the presence of his spirit. Jesus promises in verse 16 that his work on earth has not come to an end, but is carried on through another helper. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. This means that the peace Jesus gives will be experienced through the Spirit. The obedience that Jesus requires will be empowered by the Spirit. The truth that Jesus taught will be illuminated by the Spirit. The witness that Jesus calls us to, even through opposition, will be emboldened and empowered by the Spirit. And then in verse 19, he gives them the promise of eternal life. Because I live, you also will live. It is the promise of victory over death through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection would vanquish death and secure life for his people. We know that in Christ we will rise just as surely as Christ rose on the third day. That is our future in Christ. Now, I want to step back and just consider, give you a, a few categories to consider that will help us from all of Scripture, uh, theological 
categories that will help us to face the future with confidence in Christ. Right? So I have four of these four pillars from God's word of truth that will enable us, that will help us now and for the remainder of our lives to be a people who are looking to the future with, with joy and hope. The first category is God's future grace. Uh, it is very important when we think about the category of God's grace that we not only think about the past, but that we also remember that there is grace to come. Uh, fear and anxiety gain the upper hand in our lives when we look to the future apart from the fresh supplies of grace that God promises will meet us there. There was one morning when my daughter Aggie was weak from battling cancer and our family, I remember, was more exhausted than we have ever been. And my wife read... Um, a Charles Spurgeon quote to me from his book, Beside Still Waters. It's just a magnificent uh, devotional book. And Megan was reading to me that morning through tears. They were tears of sorrow and tears of comfort and tears of hope. Um, by the way, tears are not incompatible with laughing at the days to come. Uh, part of what it means to be a people of hope is to be a people who express that hope in the form of lament and appropriate grief, looking to the Lord, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. This is what Megan shared with me. We have great demands, and this is Spurgeon, we have great demands, but Christ has great supplies. Between here and heaven, we may have greater wants than we have yet known, but all along the journey, every resting place is ready. Provisions are laid up. Good cheer is stored and nothing has been overlooked. The commissary of the eternal is absolutely perfect. So military posts would uh, usually include a commissary, which is a store of food and supplies. Our needs are many. Christ knows our needs and has already prepared to meet them. He goes before us and he promises to supply us with his grace along the way. Fear of the future is the result of forgetting future grace. And when we look to the future, we need to do so with fresh supplies of God's grace in view. And then we discover in light of God's future grace that we can actually be optimistic about the future. That's the Christian position. It is a position of optimism. Now, it's important to distinguish between faith and natural optimism. The Bible, here's what I would say, the Bible does promote optimism, but it's a certain kind of optimism. It is not the secular optimism of positive thinking. It is the godly optimism of Christian hope. This is an optimism that's marked by realism and mixed with grief. It is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We know that in this world we will have trouble, and yet we take heart to know that Christ is the one who has overcome the world. We know that weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. See, the reality is, and because you, you may know some people who are more naturally optimistic than others, natural optimism is simply a matter of temperament. Uh, it's not a virtue. It's not a requirement for the Christian. The temperamental optimist, though we may look at them with great envy and think we were, wish we were more like that, the sort of carefree posture, the, the temperamental optimist doesn't have an advantage over the temperamental pessimist 
in living the Christian life or in the exercise of Christian hope. It is not a personality that gives us hope. It is the gospel. And it is the promises of God. Randy Alcorn says, Because of the certainty of Christ's atoning sacrifice and his promises, biblical realism is optimism. That's the point. Biblical realism. If you're seeing things the way that they really are, then you will look to the future with great optimism. There's a hymn by Mary Boley Peters, All Will Be Well. The title of the book comes from that hymn, and it has been such a great encouragement to me as I seek to look to the future with confidence. We expect a bright tomorrow, all will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow, all is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying, in our living, in our dying, all must be well. How can we say it? God's future grace. So take that category of the future grace of God and make sure it's being applied as you look to your future. Second category is the power of hope. Now, there's so much that could be said about this category of Christian hope. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, we're called to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verse 13 says, It is our blessed hope. What is it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on through the entire story of Scripture, Revelation 21 reveals a new heaven and a new earth, God dwelling with his people, no more mourning, no more death, no more pain, all things are made new. This is the Christian's great hope, the certainty that we have. Christians have been, 1 Peter 1 also says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is kept for you in heaven. What we celebrate in the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great truth that because Jesus lives, mourning and crying and death are not the end of the story. Christians are eternal optimists because we know how the story ends. Jesus triumphs, and we triumph along with him. And the promise of Christ that he is making all things new and will make all things new is a reminder of the cosmic scope of redemption. Romans 8.22 says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And all we have to do is open up our eyes in this fallen world, and we see creation groaning all around us. But louder than creation's groaning is the music of hope that sounds forth in the gospel. Because God sent his son, who through his death and resurrection would save sinners and make all things new, we have hope. Not just for our own lives as believers, but for the entire cosmos. For what God is doing in the world. Uh, Michael Reeves says that the tomb from which Christ emerged became the womb of a new creation. That's the significance of the resurrection. The tomb from which he emerged, what a picture, became a womb of the new creation, of Christ making all things new. Remember that Christian hope is not consummated when we die, but when Christ comes again. We do not look forward primarily to 
uh, death and the intermediate state, though certainly that will be gain. But our blessed hope is the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the renewal of all creation. Redemption does not mean that the created world doesn't matter. Redemption means that the created world is a part of God's purpose and will be renewed in Christ. Heaven is coming soon to the earth in which we dwell. All will be renewed. All will be transformed. The paradise, once lost will be regained with surpassing glory, and it will be glorious beyond our imagining. Jesus makes all things new. This is, this is the hope that we have. Did you know everything that is written in Scripture is written to give us hope? Uh, there are some passages in Scripture that talk about the reason and purpose of Scripture. And so you have... Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture breathed out by God, profitable. Okay, so every scripture, all of it, is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, Romans 15.4 is one of those passages that talks about the purpose of all of scripture, and this is what it says. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. That's, that's one of God's designs in Scripture. So every passage, as we're studying Scripture together, as we're enjoying fellowship over, over God's Word, what Scriptures has God used to give you hope? And how does this Scripture, how is it designed by God to fortify and to strengthen our hope? The Bible has a lot to say about hope. Hope is described as an anchor in Hebrews 6 because it gives us peace in the storm. It is a helmet 1 Thessalonians 5, because hope protects us in the battle, it guards our minds. And hope is described as a door in Hosea 2, because God takes the places of trouble and turns them into places of grace. Hope, hope is an outlook. Hope is embracing what is certain. Hope is is resting in the good sovereignty of God and what he says is true about our future in Christ. And there is tremendous power in this kind of hope. Uh, Tim Keller uh, gives an illustration that I think I found so helpful in describing the energizing power of hope. So he says this, all right, follow this. Imagine he says that there are two women who are identical in age, socioeconomic status, education level, and temperament. All right, the two women, they're the same. They're both hired uh, as part of a tedious assembly line doing work that is extremely repetitive and is extremely boring. They do this work over and over for eight hours each day. These two women, who are the same in personality and temperament, uh, are also in identical rooms, the same lighting, the same temperature, the same ventilation. They have the same number of breaks. So their circumstances are identical, except, he says, for one difference. And here's the difference. One woman has been told that at the end of the year, she will be paid $30,000. The other woman has been told that she will be paid $30 million. You know, you can imagine, and what he says is, after a few weeks, the one woman is going crazy and wants to quit. The other woman is working full of joy. What is it that makes the difference? It can all be reduced to one factor, which is their expectation of the future. 
And so Keller says, what we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. And that is true. It's the energizing power of hope. Hope means not only a better future, it invades the present with joy and faith. It empowers us to face whatever comes our way. Now, here's an important application uh, related to Christians being a people of hope. Uh, We should not bring a sense of panic to our cultural engagement. Okay? We shouldn't bring a sense of panic to our cultural engagement. Christians do not have a joy that rises and falls based on whether a particular candidate wins an election or how a particular leader governs. Our hope is not in rulers. Our security is found elsewhere. And just as God's people have done throughout history, many Christians today have sadly a tendency to trust in power and military might and getting the right public officials in place and there is a better way. We need to say our trust is not in our president. It never is. Our trust is not in the economy. My trust is not in the direction that our culture is taking. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. We need to be reminded again and again that our ability to honor Christ as believers is never contingent upon our possession of political power. In fact, Sometimes the way we respond when we don't get what we hoped for politically is our most powerful witness in the public square. The darker the days, the brighter our hope will shine. The greater the anxieties of this world, the more powerful our witness to Christ will be. Carl Henry once noted that the early church did not say, look what the world is coming to. He says, no, no, they said, look what has come into the world in Christ. And they modeled this hope, this confidence in Christ. That is the power of hope. In in 1 Peter, you see that hope is to make a difference in that it is noticed by the world. In chapter 3, I believe it's verse 15, it talks about giving a reason for the hope that is in us. In other words, in dark times, when everyone else is freaking out, you look at the believer and you say, wow, wow. He or she is calm. What explains this this hope that you have? How is it that you are living in the midst of such difficulties and trials and opposition with such extraordinary hope? And then it says, give a reason for the hope that is in you and do this with gentleness and respect. I think this hope makes a huge difference in the flavor of Christian cultural engagement. Because there is a gentleness and a respect that flows from the hope that we have in what God is doing throughout all of human history. We know the end of the story, and this is the power of hope. So that's the second main pillar category. Third one is using the promises. Using the promises. 
Here's a, here's a, these are all, each one of these massive categories that could occupy an entire evening and beyond of our thoughts. So we're just dropping into these. Consider the difference that the promises of God are to make in your life. The question I want to know is whether the promises of God function for us the way that they should. Do you remember the story in Joshua 10 when the sun stands still? There were five kings and their great armies that joined together to attack a place called Gibeon. And the men of Gibeon called for Joshua. Joshua came to help. And that is when the Lord drew near to Joshua and made a promise. The Lord promised that he would fight for them, that he would secure the victory of his people. Joshua 10, verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And then, so there's the promise. And then the very next verse said that Joshua courageously took action and came suddenly upon his enemies. He was made strong and obedient by the promise of God. John Calvin, in his commentary on Joshua, draws a really important lesson from that verse. And if we understand this, it just might revolutionize our approach to the entire Christian life. It's one sentence from Calvin, but it contains so much wisdom for how the Christian life is lived. This is the sentence, okay? This is Calvin in his commentary on Joshua. God stimulates us more powerfully to the performance of duty by promising than by ordering. All right? God stimulates us more powerfully to the performance of duty by promising than by ordering. That, I read that is a remarkable statement. Ordering or commanding tells us our duties, and we have duties, many of them. And ordering is an essential part of guiding Christians in the performance of their duties. Ordering says, this is what you must do. Promises, on the other hand, reveal not what we must do, but what God has bound himself to do for us. Now, the way God strengthens us for all that he's called us to do has more to do with his promises than with his commands, is what Calvin says. It is the promises of God that are the place that we find power to be and to do all that God has called us to be and do. Johnny Erickson Tata is a hero of mine. She should be a hero of yours as well because she has faced an extraordinarily difficult life with such radiant joy in Christ. And she talks about the promises of God. She talks about how God's promises are her sword and her shield She's learned to wield the promises every day. Growing up, I'm sure you know her story. Growing up, Johnny was very active. She loved riding horses, hiking, tennis, and swimming. She had a diving accident as a teenager and became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. That was on July 30th, 1967, just over 50 years ago. And at that time... As she tells the story, anger, fear, and depression assailed her. And her story throughout her life is the testimony of the sustaining grace of God. Christ has sustained her. God has taught her how to fight for faith 
by using the promises of God. And by relying on God's promises, she has faced a difficult future with defiant joy and staggering courage. I want to be more like her. Johnny says that she can often hear her pain nagging at her and taunting her. Any who know, and your situation doesn't need to be as severe, it's not as Johnny's, but anyone who knows any kind of pain or chronic pain um, and the decline of health. Johnny says she can often hear her pain nagging at her and taunting her. Yeah, yeah, you say that God is good, but come on, look at you. You're paralyzed with quadriplegia. You're in a wheelchair. You can hardly do anything for yourself. And on top of all that, you feel that knife into your hip and lower back? That's me, your old friend, Pain, just reminding you that you've got nothing to be happy about, nothing. If you stand back and look at yourself, you've got to admit it, Johnny. You're a miserable, sorry sight. So go on, curse God, and die. She says, that's what pain tries to tell me. But you know what? I have learned not to listen. What's more, I've learned to fight back with joy. I take joy, the Holy Spirit's gift to me, and I hold it up in front of my pain and say, look, I may be wasting away on the outside, but inside I am being renewed. I'm being renewed by the promise of my salvation, by the promise of God's grace, by the promise that my godly response to you, pain, will win me a rich reward in heaven. I have the joy of the Lord, and He is my strength. I have joy that is real and rock-solid, unshakable, and unmovable, all because of Jesus and His promises. So you take that pain. That's the way we talk to our sorrows and to pain. And this joyful courage and faith-filled outlook on the future is not beyond you, Christian, because Johnny's God is your God and the promises that she clings to are promises God has made to you as well. The promises of God make us defiant. By them we resist temptation, we fight depression, we destroy condemnation, all by the power of the promises of God. The way to strengthen your faith is to remember how the promises of God, not just generally, but very specifically apply to the particulars of our situation. Friends, you will not find a condition or face a trial for which there is not a relevant and corresponding promise to comfort you and to strengthen you. Go to the promises. Does Satan condemn you and call attention to your many sins? If we confess our sins, promise, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 verse 9. Does a sense of loneliness and inadequacy surround you? Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, promise, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are you weary in your work, either your vocation or in ministry, carrying responsibilities presently that are a great burden to you? Remember the promise of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28. Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a promise. And so you go to the promises, and we use the promises of God to experience strength and to find grace to help in time of need. Use the promises. And then fourth, and the last heading, is Christ's unfailing love. Christ's unfailing love. The strong hand of Christ will keep you to the end, and that makes all the difference in how you look at the future. I'm reminded of the end of Romans chapter 8, that glorious, familiar section of Scripture. It's been called the Christian's Triumph Song, where Paul, at the end of that chapter, asks a series of rhetorical questions, and one of them is, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he presses further and would have us consider... uh, specific categories and experiences that pose the greatest threat to our sense of security. What are the realities that we might consider as most likely to come between us and the love of Christ? Romans 8.35 gives seven possible candidates. Paul himself experienced these things and much more. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And then verse 36, as it is written, and a quote from Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There is is so much insecurity in the world today. And it's because of those realities that Paul lists there. Distress, dangers, trials of many kinds. Who knows what hardships will come? Who knows what trials await us? Who knows what persecutions we will endure? Christianity does not minimize the reality of great hardship and suffering in a fallen world. But it's in the midst of those experiences that God wants us to know that His love for us will never fail. Remember that that question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, is not the first question that Paul asks in that section of Romans 8. And the truths behind the other questions that came just before this reveal the nature of the love of God for sinners like us. God's love not only means that he feels a certain way toward us, but also that he has secured for us a certain future. Question one is in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? We know that no opposition will ultimately succeed because no matter who is against you, the sovereign Lord of the universe is always for you. Question two, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has already given us His only Son, which is the greatest gift imaginable because of the infinite love that He has for His Son. There is no greater gift. He gave His Son. And therefore, if He did the greater thing in His love, will He not certainly do lesser things in that same love, graciously giving us all things? I want to say to the Christian, that's your future in Christ. A God who graciously gives all things. What does that mean? (laughs) 
J.I. Packer, I love the way J.I. Packer explains that phrase, he will give us all things. Listen to this. He says, the meaning of he will give us all things can be put thus. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. He will give us all things. And then question three is in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Question four, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christian, this is the staggering love of God in Christ for you. Yes, trials are certain, but the love of Christ is even more certain. God is forever for you. He did not spare his son, but gave him up to die the death that we deserve. And not only has he graciously given his son, but he will graciously give us all things. Nothing, nothing that could have increased your eternal happiness will be denied you. And it is in light of these truths that Paul can consider every imaginable threat to our security in the love of God and say, no, no, verse 37, will these things separate us from the love of God? No. In all these things, we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things means that we are now in the present more than conquerors, not in spite of suffering, and disappointment do we conquer, but in and through these trials, we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let courage rise in your heart and rest in this love of God for us. George Matheson was, I want to tell you his story, you may know it, he was born in Glasgow, Scotland, in 1842. By the age of 18, he was totally blind. And in spite of this disability, he went on to be an accomplished Bible scholar and teacher. He had been engaged to be married as a teenager, but when his fiancée discovered he was going blind, she sadly left him. And he was devastated by this. Matheson's sister cared for him in his blindness, But years later, she was engaged to be married. And Matheson was reminded in that moment of the heartbreak of the former relationship he had lost with his sister entering marriage. The the wound was fresh. And years later, he still grieved that his desire to be married had not yet been fulfilled. He knew, however, that marriage is not what makes us complete that marriage does not satisfy us most deeply, that only the love of Christ can do that. And so on the night before his sister's wedding, in the midst of his sorrow and distress, he wrote one of the great hymns of the 19th century. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. When our soul is weary, when life has disappointed us, there is a love that will not let us go. And George Matheson, in his great sorrow and distress, had this unshakable hope in the love of God. Brothers and sisters, do you have that same hope, that same confidence today? I know you do. 
Has your weary soul found rest in knowing there is a love that will never let us go? It is one of the glories of the teaching of Scripture that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. John Stott said, and I, want to, I just have a couple quotes here. It's true, so much of what I write in the books, just compilation of quotes and then some comments around them. John Stott says, Our confidence is not in our love for God, which is frail, fickle, and faltering. Our confidence is in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and preserving. Our confidence is not in our love for him, but his love for us. And J.I. Packer says, Your faith will not fail while God sustains it, You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. These are the great pillars of our bright tomorrow. God's future grace, the power of hope, using the promises, and Christ's unfailing love. One of the things that I was doing just as I reflected on the future, and I'll close with this. I sometimes, and I hope this doesn't seem too too morbid, but, but... I think about worst-case scenarios sometimes. Sometimes it can be helpful to say, okay, what's a worst-case scenario? How could this play out? And how does the hope that we have in Christ function in those situations? If you, still in considering these truths, find yourself fearful of the future, I want to give that piece of counsel from Scripture to consider Biblically speaking, the long-term worst-case scenario. What does it mean? If greater sickness and pain is ahead for any one of us, in a little while you will be perfectly healed. A new body will be yours in the resurrection, and that body will be full of strength and glory. I love what D.A. Carson, Carson once said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Every one of us in this fallen world, whatever sickness and ailment may come our way, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. If you enter into days of loneliness, we will soon be together in that great gathering of all God's people, reunited with loved ones in Christ and enjoying fellowship with the Father forever. If loss is ahead, we will later come to know an inheritance that far surpasses all that we have parted with in this life. If we come to know overwhelming sorrows and grief in this world more than we ever thought that we would, we know that eternal gladness and ever-increasing joy comes with the bright tomorrow. If others sin against us, if others disappoint us, If the love of others fails us, we know a love that will never fail. If death itself comes sooner than we thought, we will be with Christ, which is far better. And we will understand in that moment more of the perfect ways of the Lord than we presently do. And we will understand more of how all things all along were indeed working together for our good, And we will one day rise in victory over death and dwell in a world in which death is no more and the love of God satisfies us deeply and eternally. Friends, this is your inheritance. This 
This is your future. This is your future in Christ. Your tomorrow in him. And it is incredibly bright. I want to take a moment just to pray that God would seal these words on our hearts. Father, we do ask, Lord, that these truths from your word would be planted deep within our hearts. Lord, make us sturdy, resilient, joyful, hope-filled, laughing at the days to come type of believers. Lord, we will not panic. We will not fear, for we trust in you, and we trust in your promises, and we rest in the goodness of your love for us now and throughout our days and through all eternity. Deepen our confidence in you as we look to our bright tomorrow, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's so easy, as we know, when we go through a, a, a trial of some kind like that, to, to think about the future and to reflect on the uncertainties of that, of that future. And so I often thought to myself, I, and especially when Aggie was at her sickest, I don't know if the story that God is writing includes her being with us into the future. I mean, I will to think about my Aggie. I celebrate every birthday and every holiday. I used to have some sense of proportion even on like social media, try to share evenly with my kids. Aggie has just captured my heart and taken over my, my life. And the fact that she's still with us is a miracle of, of God's grace. I think that the way that God's promises functioned were to know that even when circumstances even when I didn't understand what God was doing, that I was still able to, to, to trust him, to know that he is good. Spurgeon has that quote, when we cannot trace his hand, we must learn to trust his heart. And so, okay, Lord, there are promises about your heart and the love that you have for me and the love that you have for Aggie. And there was a comfort to be found in that. You know, we, do, I didn't, we don't have the promise that a child will not die at young age. So we can't, we can't go there and we can't cling to that. But we can rest in knowing that the Lord is good and does good. And, and rest in knowing, sometimes in life we know how God is working things for our good. Like you can see it. This happens and then, oh, I see what God's doing in my life and how this is... There are other times where I think that promise of Romans 8.28, and this is perhaps most of the time, we won't know until 
we are in glory. And that promise alone, though, is one to, to cling to. I don't need to, to be able to see, to be able to understand. I need to be able to, uh, to trust. And um, so I, I did find great comfort in knowing that as much as I love my precious little Aggie the Brave, uh, that, that God loves her even more, far more than I do, that his heart uh, toward her is one of tenderness and compassion. I was greatly affected in reading the Gospels during that time and just seeing the heart of Christ on display for those who are suffering. Um, and that there's, there's something of God's character and his promise to take comfort in there. I think that the book of Psalms is, is a treasure trove of um, experiential engagement of God. So that in our, if you want to know what it looks like for hope to function and to move toward God in the midst of um, oppression, in the midst of mistreatment, in the midst of despondency, uh, in the midst of sickness... There, there is a psalm, I believe it's Calvin who says there is a psalm for, for every situation of the soul. And um, so I, I think that turning to the book of Psalms is an immense help and learning from those saints who cried out to the Lord in lament. Here's another thing that I would say and didn't drop into this in hope too much, but there, lament is an expression of hope. It doesn't exist in opposition to hope. It is, in fact, expressing Because what lament says is, though there is difficulty, though there is pain, I'm going to turn to the Lord. Um, I'm not going to turn away from God in the midst of this. And so I think, as Christians, we need to, we need to learn the skill of, of lament. Um, it's not about, just well, just hoping God, well, here's a, you know, a promise. There's nothing simplistic about the exercise of, of Christian hope. Um, it's not just, well, that's why it's not, well, block these hardships out of your mind and just remember these things, heaven is coming. That's not how hope functions. It is, yes, your hardship is real. Yes, your suffering is great. And, and here's who God is for you in the midst of that hardship and how he sustains hope. Uh, in, in your soul. So it's different in each case, but we don't mini- we never use the reality of hope to just minimize and downplay the sorrows that we experience in a fallen world. Um, and yet we do remember 
that all of the suffering that we experience in this world does indeed pale in comparison to the glory that is being prepared for us. But that's never used in, that truth is never used in a way so get over it. Um, the Christian life, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We have a question for you. Rodney here. This is where I have been so incredibly helped by those who have done the work of writing books that summarize so much of the, 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 the content that fits these categories. And so for me, a book like John Piper's Future Grace is incredibly helpful. A book like Randy Alcorn's Heaven just systematically goes through, here's what awaits us on that final day. Um, there are books that have been written that are an incredible help in summarizing aspects of our future uh, in, in Christ. I mentioned some of those. Yes, exactly. Right, exactly. That as well. Yeah, great and so many great and precious promises. But even if you're realizing that, that's a great, it's a great starting point just to be able to say, okay, I'm going to read scripture with an eye to what promises has God made to me and how should they and how should they function? Um, I, see, I think actually those who, are, those who are naturally optimistic sometimes aren't thinking about their future at all. And that's the problem. All Christians need to be equipped and discipled in a knowledge of what our future is in Christ. For all of us, we tend to spend more time when we look to the future thinking about the things that we don't know than the things that we do know. And so one of my main goals is just what you've articulated, saying, yes, Scripture says so much about our future now study it, dive into it, learn about, like, in a very personal and even individual way, this is what God says about my future. This is true of me, and, and find hope and comfort in that. There's a chapter in the book on using the promises, and I think I have some resources in there on uh, specifically about, um, you know, that places that the uh, promises of God are, are summarized. There was a Puritan book that was written on the promises of God that I'm now drawing a blank on. Because I wrote the book too long ago. Yeah, you're actually asking, not asking questions about the book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ken, do you have a question? Oh, Jess, do you think that... Uh, 
in the United States and in like places where there's more wealth, you know, many of us like think about suffering, we don't suffer as well as big Christians in other parts of the world. We don't have as much material lessons as we do. Um, and if that's the case, then how do we, as American, Americans living in the 21st century, such material blessing, how do we focus on Christ more and be more like Christians in the parts of the world who, when they suffer, perhaps they're at, they, they have to ask more about Christ than they do we do. Yeah, for almost all of us, ours is the, the test of prosperity, the, the, the test of honoring God in the midst of having plenty, <laughs> um, having an abundance. Part of the reason that we and I don't look forward to the future that I have in Christ more than I do is because my heart can become attached to the things of this world. And I can even think that lasting satisfaction is found in, you know, I really would love someday to be a, a, a grandpa. I would really love this experience. And there are desires that I have for the future, but I can never say that, that my ultimate hope is found in these things. And I, and I think that it's the great art because we are so surrounded by materialism, I, mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of insight in, in your, your question. We need to constantly be prying our heart off of those things onto um, what really matters in, in life. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That sense of longing for God and for God alone. And so that's where we need to, you know, you're preaching through Ecclesiastes. It's one of the, the glories of that book is having an understanding of the things of earth not satisfying. It was not too long ago that I um, was in California with some friends and we ended up doing a, a boat trip, rented a little boat for the afternoon. So we were going around this thing, but looking at all of these like insanely expensive houses. And we were joking the whole time, like, wow, can you imagine living there just no marriage problems at all. You know, imagine living, oh, no, just no sickness. Wouldn't it be great? You know, like, and of course, none of these things are true, right? It's the lie that if you live there, then all your problems go away. The reality is um, we crave and we long for more and for better in this, in this life, and it won't ultimately satisfy. So, I, yeah, I think that we, we do need to be uh, making sure that we're setting our hearts on, on God and on uh, the future that we have in every joy in this world pales in comparison to the joy that we will have in the new heavens and the, and the new earth. Um, and that's what we need to keep in mind. And I just want to flip one thing. Uh, I've had many Christians in other places that think that their answer for sorrows and they experience in this life would actually be able to, to come to a place like the United mm-hmm. States because there would be so much more material and so much more access. Mm-hmm. And so where we might have a unique perspective of prosperity and have to have that stripped away, for others we have to remind them that the answer is not material abundance that they might see in a country like the United States. And in fact, we, we want to point in both cases that the answer is, is Christ. Yes. So it, it's not simply true that just because people are outside of our country, they might see more clearly. In fact, there are many people who 
I'd say they're helped that you quoted tonight, who are in contexts like ours, whether it's our country or you know, over in, in Europe, who, who wrote faithfully and saw clearly, and Arabian people who are in other suffering places, who see clearly too, and together make a whole picture of mm. trusting in Christ and hoping yeah. in Christ beyond our prosperity or beyond yeah. our suffering, that the, the great promise of the gospel is union with Christ. Yes. And, in, and in that, we have hope, no matter what we're facing. Yes. Chris, and then, I'm sorry, brother, I don't know your name. Can you give him some good Chris first and him? Eugene, Mike, to Chris. Um, so this is kind of a strange question. I guess it would be both for you and Brandon and anyone else who's done Christian counseling. Sometimes, um, if you turn on the news, there's suffering all around the world, globally, nationally, all over the place. And sometimes my reaction has been Lord, why did this happen to me? I see a young couple where a husband is taken by a car accident or a child gets cancer. And I think it might be great to in my circumstances. And oftentimes I found myself, Lord, why did you afflict me with that? Because it would be better for me to have it than this, this young couple or this family. Does that make sense? I'm just I'm curious to see if that sentiment is something that you've heard before or experienced before. Because it's something I've Yeah, one of the main categories of, of suffering in a, in a fallen world is, the, is that category of, of senseless, uh, random suffering. Why did this happen to this person? Meaning those forms of suffering that are not the result of, of someone's sin, um, you know, but just seems to be out of nowhere. And I, I absolutely think that experience is one that we can relate to and say, okay, why... Um, it, it's the whole category of the, the mystery of, of suffering. And I, do, I think whenever we talk about suffering, we need to have that category of mystery functioning very largely. It's so much, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord. There are many hidden things. The whole book of Job comes to mind as, uh, you know, touching on these very themes of um, God's uh, of suffering and the, the mystery of uh, you know of suffering. So it it doesn't seem like much of an answer to say there is mystery in suffering, but I actually think that having that category, we can't always look at someone's experience and say, well, this is why this happened to this person. Often in life, we won't know why, or this is what God is doing through your suffering. I'm all, we we know. We can speak in general ways of, okay, God, the Bible says that God does these things through suffering, but we can't say, well, this is why your daughter got cancer. It's, it's here. We, we say we, we trust in the Lord, but there is mystery in God's, in God's sovereign purposes. What would you add? I love fantasy and just kind of epic tales and fears going on, thinking, thinking about speaking to somebody on the heels of uh, watching the This suffering would have been easier. I would have been able to, to take that in a way that's easier than the suffering I'm experiencing. And how 
in, in those moments, it feels unbearable. But putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, even if their suffering maybe seems more desirable than the one that we're going through, realizing the agony of that they experience in a different way, the loss of a child, the death of a parent early, uh, you know, miss, uh, missed opportunities, or just things that don't happen in life the way that they seem like they should. You know, there's this normal pattern that you think, okay, here's the, the general template for life. I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, these things will happen, and then wherever stuff starts to miss. Um, so looking at that, I do think it's a very common question. A sufferer is going to think, this suffering would have been a better suffering for me, and it would not have been like a living hell. Um, said every person who is not in that particular category. Similarly, someone might say the same. This suffering would have been better for me than the one I'm experiencing. Mm. So I'm, some of them speaking personally, some of them thinking just, just broadly. That's a, a bucket category there. So. Yeah. Your name, brother? Bob Feldman. Hey, Bob. Good to see you. Bob Feldman. Bob Feldman. Yeah. All right. And then Josh. So I have a, a hypothetical question from someone who's hypothetically male and 69 years old. Is it possible to have too much hope in the sense that one is checked out and just kind of holding on for the next 10 or 20 years? Right. Yeah, hope, hope biblically defined cannot be is not something that we look to have uh, in measure, but not too, but not too much of. Uh, the same is true with, with faith, and the same is true with love. You know, faith and hope and love are uh, that summary of the Christian life that we, we want to have as strong and as abundant as we can. Now, it's one of the, I think your, your question insightfully touches on this, it's one of the mistaken ideas about hope that if we are a, a people of hope, that we are sort of, um, you know, checked out, that we're, that we're not fully engaging uh, in this world um, and, and uh, fully, both in terms of lamenting the realities of life in a fallen world and in terms of seeking change and, and uh, justice, you know, in appropriate ways as we are engaging society. Is, was it C.S. Lewis who said those who are, the, you know, the most heavenly minded are of greatest use in this world? That's the idea. It's, it, we often hear it said, don't be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. The reality is the more we are fixing our minds on the things that are above where Christ is and the hope of glory, you know, that's what... Um, um, you know, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. So, okay, through that hope, it's transforming here and now. So if the hope, isn't, if the hope in the future is creating a Christian who's laying around on his sofa, uh, you know, and watching yet another Netflix show because he's just, you know, waiting for it to heaven. And uh, that's not how hope functions. That's not, biblical hope does not create passivity. It energizes uh, for life and for ministry and for mission. <laughs> 
Wait for the money, Josh. So I guess I've to this point. Uh, a lot of us are talking about um, finding joy in circumstances that uh, you can't control, right? So I guess, like, how do so I think sometimes, I, I have a friend, and then we'll talk when they had a job that they hated for, like, several years, right? Mm-hmm. And they were suffering through it, trying to find joy of God in that time. But what are some indicators that you would eat the person who's going find a different job if they want to? What are some of the indicators that it's time for that person to maybe still find suffering and the joy temporarily but move on? If that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think that's relationship wise, that's work wise, that can be put in any situation where there's two doors open, you know, two doors diverging in the wood. I'm going to stay on the suffering journey. Yeah, and it's a, it's a blessing where we have uh, a choice. You know, I think of the whole story of Joseph and his suffering leading one to another. You know, he was at a place where in, in his eventual work, you know, as a slave, he was able to prosper there, and he always rose in influence and, and, and power in undesirable circumstances. I think he's a great model of if you are in an unideal situation, Here's what it looks like to be a man or woman of God and to work with all your heart as working to the Lord, not to men. But it is the reality of, uh, for many of us, we are not bound in a particular uh, vocation. And God uh, God doesn't want us to seek out suffering and hardship or to make ourselves miserable. You know, if, we have, if we're in a situation where just co-workers, where it's a, a miserable situation, either through the nature of the work or the people that we're with, and it's difficult to, uh, it, it's not an enjoyable, you know, work, it's a difficult prospect to say, yeah, this is what I'm going to do for, you know, for decades. So it would, it would vary from one situation to another. Uh, I'd probably need to be uh, uh, learning more about a, a specific you know, situation, a confidence that someone isn't going to be just as miserable in any other job. Um, but I would certainly have a category for those who, yeah, it's, it's, that sounds like a really uh, unideal, miserable situation. I've, I've counseled some uh, husbands and dads along those lines where I learn of jobs that are so demanding in terms of time and they feel like they're sacrificing their family just by, because they're needing to leave the house every morning at 5.30 and then they're getting back, you know, 7.30 or 8 and it's what's expected of the job and it's working all days of the week and those sorts of things, then it may be, okay, yeah, you know, a, a consideration of a, of a different vocation is needed. In terms of, in terms of seeking God's... Right. Yeah. In in um, there are some ways in which the message of hope becomes all the more meaningful and and beautiful in a in a situation like that. Um, 
It may be that for some, their, their life is more of a life of lament. And uh, I, think we, I think we want to uphold the sufficiency of Scripture, not as a fix to these problems or to say that if you're applying these Scriptures, then you won't have these particular struggles. But I think we want to say that the gospel of hope still functions in a situation like that. But So where it may, I mean, how would my approach be different? And when you're talking about a very specific situation like that, here I'm, I'm uh, teaching, I'm talking a lot. Uh, in, a, in a conversation like that, it would be sitting and it would be listening a lot, learning what challenges that individual has, learning where, where they have found hope and, and, and um, what that battle for hope looks like, you know, in their, in their case. And I would want to lament, and I'd want to listen, and I'd want to learn, and I'd want to pray. I'd want to, you know, to pray the prayer of uh, Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And I'd want to say that this is God's desire and let's continue to pray and to, to walk that road, you know, together as a, as a friend. I think that how do we practically grow in, in hope? Um, in a case like that, community becomes all the more important. Friends who know us well becomes, you know, all the more important. People who can walk this road um, with us and help to bear our burdens become um, a really wonderful you know, means of, of grace. And so, yeah, for someone in a situation like that, I wouldn't be teaching, I wouldn't be saying, well, here's this book. Um, it would be sitting down, listening, seeking to love.